Hello and welcome to K-Talks. This is yet another special episode of K-Talks. Your co-host in this episode is Marco Kettler. Marco is a dear friend and senior partner in our network. Marco specializes in M&A and financing and has tons of experience in working with private equity. Marco's guest in this episode is Brian Wardrop. Brian is the managing partner at ARCS, one of the leading private equity houses operating in the region of Central Europe. ARCS has a 20-year track record and more than 300 million euros raised in four funds. Brian and Marco discuss a range of topics, how private equity firms select deals, how they focus on value creation and what they look for in transaction partners. They talk about what books they read and lessons learned over the years. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I have. Hey, Brian, welcome to our show. Thank you. Great to be here. Pleasure. Uh, how was your day, if I may ask? My day was pretty good. I mean, we're getting back to normal here in Prague, step by step. So I have one of my uh, partners here at Arx who, who's in town from Budapest. So a little bit of travel, a little bit of uh, team dynamics. We had a nice lunch together. Uh, myself and Bella, we haven't seen each other in probably six months or so. So so good day. Good day. Things are looking up. Very good. Uh, it feels good to see people in life uh, after a long time, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And also the, uh, you know, Zoom is fabulous as a, as a tool and a means to stay in touch and move projects forward, although it's not really uh, nearly as interesting as, as live human interaction, especially uh, the social aspect, no doubt about it. Yes. So we, we have various topics that I would like to dive in with you today. But before we do that, can you perhaps just for the sake of our audience, tell us a bit about yourself and about Arts Equity <laughs> Partners, the private equity firm that you represent? Sure. So, so I'm, uh, I'm, I've been based in, in Central and Eastern Europe for well over 20 years now. I'm, I'm not from the region. I'm, I'm Canadian. So I grew up in Canada near Toronto, you know, suburb of Toronto, and then um, moved to Europe for graduate school and then basically stumbled into a job in private equity in the late 90s in Prague, working for a, a telecom and media focused private equity firm. It was really a fabulous time to, to get into the region. And then uh, shortly after moving to the region, um, joined what is today uh, my partners and, and ARCs. And, you know, what we do at ARCs is really we invest throughout the region of Central and Eastern Europe. I'm sure we'll talk about it in a little more depth. And what where we specialize uh, is really in what I would describe as ownership succession cases. So the vast majority of the businesses we invest in or, or acquire are privately owned businesses that were either acquired or founded by entrepreneurs in the early 90s. And, and, and we're really looking to partner with these types of companies to take them to the next level. Very good. Very good. Um, can you tell us a bit about your last investments in the region? Uh, I know that you've done plenty of them, uh, some of them very, very successful. Uh, can you tell us a bit about your experience in the last few deals? 
Yeah, maybe maybe a recent deal that's worth highlighting is actually a you know a very recent deal that we completed earlier this year with your assistance, Marco, which was uh, the acquisition of a company, a Slovenian company, called Instrumentation Technologies. And and Instrumentation Technologies, or iTech, as we we commonly refer to it, is is really a fascinating business and a fascinating entrepreneurial story. So, um, iTech was founded by a Slovenian. Um, sort of scientist entrepreneur uh, many years ago, uh, and it, iTech is is developed a niche whereby it it's it's a uh, the global market leader supplying very specific instruments to scientific particle accelerators. So iTech's customers are the biggest and the most uh, sort of demanding ultra high-tech accelerators, for example, CERN in Europe, the Argonne National Laboratory in the US, et cetera, et cetera. And iTech is, is, is really the market leader supplying um, in beam position monitoring instruments to this, to this segment. And we had the opportunity to basically partner with the management team and acquire the business from, from the original founder. And the founder is a fascinating person also. He's, he's decided to basically sell the business and move on and start a new venture. He's relocated to the U.S. So really a classic owner succession story. And our and every time we make an investment, we have what we refer to as an investment thesis. So what's our idea? We're not simply buying a business to buy a business or investing in a business to invest in a business. We really have to have some sort of hypothesis or thesis in terms of what we feel we can do with that business on rough, in roughly a five or six year time frame during the period of our ownership. And then the case of, of iTech, our, our investment thesis really is, is predicated on the idea that we can take the um, exceptional know-how and scientific and technical capabilities of that team and um, all the accumulated knowledge in the scientific accelerator segment and apply it in new areas. So namely, um, in the medical med tech area, specifically proton cancer therapy centers, which operate on a similar technology to scientific particle accelerators, and also broadly industrial applications. So as, as we see the Internet of Things and predictive maintenance and all these sorts of uh, sort of buzzwords, um, uh, we feel that there's a, a, a distinct opportunity for iTech to play a role in that intersection between sort of IoT, software, hardware, predictive maintenance, fine data acquisition. So it's really, really an amazing, an amazing little business right on, right on, sitting right on the Italian border um, in Slovenia, beautiful part of the country, incidentally, great team, fabulous team, and we're really excited about it. Very good. Congratulations on, on, on a, another successful deal, deal in Slovenia. I'm always impressed to see such strong companies, which are usually going below the radar. Uh -huh. Usually hear about the acquisitions from the media. We've seen and we have worked on many successful M&A deals in the last 12 months. Uh, and I was always impressed about the quality of the companies that we basically uh, worked on. How do you, as private equity firm, find such targets? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the reality, the, the best investments and the most interesting investments we make are, in general, situations where some somehow we get into 
a, uh, a direct discussion, a bilateral discussion with an existing owner, founder, or ownership group or ownership team of a business. And these, you know, the, the, the most successful uh, mid-sized businesses are generally reluctant or owners are reluctant to um, enter into discussions with potential investors unless they've, uh, if they're well, unless they're well credentialed, unless they come with good references, et cetera. They're quite careful about who they, who they want to open the books to, so to speak. So really the best, the best um, source of investment opportunities, I would say is word of mouth. So if you look at uh, our investment track record, the majority of the investments we've made, there's, there's some aspect of, of sort of a referral or word of mouth or, or a direct bilateral relationship that gets originated somehow. There's a, maybe a source of direct introduction. And those are really the most interesting opportunities. In most case, we, we see ourselves at ARCS as solution providers. So we want to take... We, we look at a business, we look at an ownership situation and we say, okay, what are, what are the objectives of the either owner or owners? And can we provide a, a transaction solution that satisfies those objectives and that will also ensure uh, the continuity and future success of the business? So in order to get into those discussions and really understand the business and the business to understand us and our investment thesis, et cetera, um, it's it's really preferable if we're somehow in a direct dialogue. Very good. You have named various, let's say, parameters that needs to be fulfilled before you make any investment. Did the last year or year, or year and a half since we live in, in, in pandemics, did your decision-making process anyhow changed? Did you implement any additional let's say, parameters that need to be fulfilled before you make any investment? Or to put it in other words, did you took a bit longer time to decide whether you will invest in a company since March 2020? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I think to sum it up, I think, again, iTech is a great example because we, We visited iTech uh, for the first time in June of 2020. And that's the only time we physically visited the company prior to actually completing the investment. So, and, and the management team who we partnered with in the transaction, we, we met them physically in person only twice before we made the investment. So once on site last June in, in Slovenia, once we managed to meet in Vienna, And we, we never actually, we, we have yet to meet the, the, the founder of the business, so the seller in this case, um, which is extremely unusual. And nonetheless, so, so essentially this was a, a transaction largely done virtually, or largely done over Zoom. And I would say that um, the, the time period to complete the deal was certainly longer than a typical investment. And I would, I would say that the reason for that or the, the extended transaction timeline primarily related to the time, the time required to build trust, transactional trust over Zoom. So we, uh, we had a, you know, a seller involved, a management team involved, ourselves, 
and and all of this interaction was over Zoom. And uh, I'd say on all sides, it required, uh, you know, I mean, you were involved, Marco. I don't know how many Zoom calls, innumerate, countless, in order to build a sufficient level of trust to go forward with the deal. I would also say, and on all sides, not just on our side, but on the seller side and the management team side, I would also say that the, the importance of uh, the transaction advisors in this sort of environment, this virtual environment, is absolutely paramount. So you and your team uh, were, were critical because we've worked together with you in the past on several successful cases. So we had trust built inherently. Our, uh, the law firm that assists us in uh, some transaction structuring matters uh, and shareholder agreement matters and is a Dutch law firm. Also, we know we know that firm extremely well. So this this trust that we had in the, I would call it the uh, all the constituent parts of the of the transaction was really important to get that done. And I would say that um, we will, as I can imagine at Arcs, we will continue to work this way to some extent. So. I believe that the days, maybe we'll get into it later on the podcast, but I believe the days of sort of flying in to a city for one lunch meeting and connecting, those days might be, if not totally gone, certainly reduced. And I believe that ultimately we can be more efficient in our investment processes by uh, combining all these virtual tools, uh, advisors we have trust in, as well as, uh, you know, face-to-face -face interaction, but probably more limited and, and less time-wasted traveling. Yes. It's going to be very, very interesting to see how the interactions will, will continue in, in the months to, no, months to follow. But what we certainly see that shift from uh, a lot of time spent on airports to a lot of sp time spent on Zoom or, or, or Teams. Uh, we see also uh, situations where people, as you said, uh, would like to build trust on face-to-face -face meetings. And lately, in the, in the last few weeks, as the pandemic situation is, is better all around Europe, uh, we see more face-to-face -face meetings. Uh, but of course, I agree with you that probably in the long term, uh, we would all find a, an agreement that perhaps it is not efficient to have a, an every meeting face-to-face. Uh, -face. Uh, so that's def definitely what we, what we see um, in practice and expect to be, to stay part of, part of our practice. Um, how about the, the situation in the, the macro situation in, in the world? How do you see the current situations affecting the deal flow, uh, the, the, the next few months, let's say the next 12 months, I'm not sure whether we can even look uh, for a longer period, like considering the volatility that we saw in the last uh, 15 months. How do you see uh, this evolve? We have the record dry powder among the private equity firms. We have the lowest interest rates in history. Uh, we have inflation scare. Uh, how do you see this will impact uh, the deal flow of in general and the deal flow of ARCs? Yeah, I, I, well, I, I'll address that question from two perspectives. First, in terms of asset val valuations and 
the macro outlook. Really, it's anyone's guess. So I, I wouldn't, uh, you know, we have intensive internal discussions all the time here at ARCS and we have, we come, we come out with revised views all the time, even amongst individual team members in terms of what the outlook might look like. But where it, where it things, um, I would say, regress to the mean almost always in our internal discussions is basically what we what we do at ARCS is we we're not we've never been a firm that's um, been mandated or to time macro cycles we don't look at macro cycles so much we look at risks and we look at maybe sector outlooks to some extent but what we're really trying to do is to buy and invest in good solid sustainable businesses um, at reasonable valuations with you know on the basis of an investment thesis that we think we can implement alongside a management team and there there are cases in our portfolio where our past portfolio where we've held we've held investments through very difficult macro cycles so we've we've some of our best investments have been investments that we held through the uh, the 0809 global financial crisis and the beauty of the beauty of the private equity model, in a sense, is that provided we don't uh, over-lever overlever the businesses, not too much debt involved in in the acquisitions. For example, the iTech deal I talked about is an all-equity deal. There's no leverage. There's no bank debt involved. Um, so, you, so this is a business that should be in a position to withstand shocks and withstand volatility. So we don't employ a great deal of. Uh, you know, high degrees of leverage in our deals in order to provide some financing headroom and buff buffer to get through the difficult macro cycle if it comes. And ultimately, if it's a good business and, and there's a strategy that, that makes sense and there's an investment thesis that's being implemented, sooner or later, um, this, this will materialize as, as an excellent investment normally. And again, some of our, I think it was in our fund, you know, our fund two, the best investment in our fund too, by far, was an investment we held for uh, 10, even slightly over 10 years. And um, that was an investment that was deliberately held for more than 10 years because we saw that, you know, the optimal time to exit or to, to, to realize and monetize the investment had qu hadn't quite come yet. So that's, that's, I think, a point of emphasis when we're talking about the private equity model. You really do see PE firms that are, are able and willing to hold businesses through the long the long run and um, and weather macro cycles. There's a, there's a very interesting perspective because sometimes people see who are not aware of the model um, see P firms as a pure cost cutters who would like to exit the company in three to five years lifespan and, and just make make the profit uh, from from what I saw in, in, in working with you and, and other P firms, it's a bit different perspective. It's exactly what you basically told at the beginning. I see P firms as um, helpers to the further growth of the companies. Basically, P firms embrace the companies, embrace the management, provide additional equity if needed. Uh, and then enable the further growth uh, of the company. Um, this is certainly my experience with what I saw with uh, what I saw in practice. One thing was very interesting. And, and Marco, maybe I'll jump in on that because I think a key point here also is we we 
where we're successful in our investments is we we enable management teams to to you know realize their full potential or to get and 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 we prefer to give our management teams the portfolio company management teams a high level of autonomy so an, another excellent example was you know another transaction you you uh, worked with us on which was uh, diagnostic center bled or diagnostic centrum bled dc bled and this was a case where we we you know this was a family owned business um, small chain of um, healthcare clinics in Slovenia, excellent reputation, excellent quality of uh, uh, medical personnel, and uh, you know a family a family ownership model that that you know what wasn't an ideal fit to capitalize on the next phase of growth for the business, which was an opportunity to use DC Bled as a platform to consolidate some smaller. Uh, clinics and basically grow the business through acquisitions. And there was a management team, you know, the management team we worked with in, in this case, the CEO and CFO were, you know, when we invested inexperienced at uh, M&A. So they'd never really gone out and done a lot of buying of other businesses themselves in any business they've run. And through the course of uh, our, our, our period of ownership alongside them with DC Bled, uh, DC Bled made a number of acquisitions, and I would argue that you know we at Arcs uh, contributed to the learning for this uh, for this team. And now this management team, which is still running the business with new ownership, with strategic ownership, is an absolutely seasoned uh, they're seasoned M and A people, so they absolutely know how to go out and ex execute out on acquisitions very very well, very efficiently. And I think they have a lot of fun doing it and they enjoy it and they have a high level of autonomy and it, it, it's worked great. So I would emphasize also the point that, you know, a, a good a good private equity management setup is one where the private equity firm doesn't interfere too much in the day-to-day -day operations of the business, but adds some some value in discrete areas such as M&A, such as fi finance, maybe maybe a little bit on strategy and the exit and really enables a management team to go and reach their full potential. I can certainly agree that people can learn a lot from private equity persons like yourself. There's just so much knowledge in private equity firms and private equity people. Uh, what I would like to come back to is to the financial crisis that you mentioned. You said that one of the most successful investment stories were basically held throughout the last financial crisis. And as some of the very seasoned investment um, experts, such as Ray Dalio or Jeremy Grantham, are speculating about the new bubble in the financial markets, and that they're saying that this bubble might burst in the following months, and shocks to financial markets usually bring opportunities. And I was, I was wondering whether you're planning to perhaps raise more funds in the next months uh, to be ready for potential opportunities in the markets? Yeah, in terms of fundraising, um, we, we are you know, sufficiently capitalized at the moment in our, we're currently investing our fourth fund. Um, so we won't be raising a new fund for the next several months. The, uh, the typical model or tempo for us in fundraising is about every five years we raise a new fund 
we invest the fund in roughly a five-year period. We harvest those investments in the subsequent five-year period while we have a new fund raised to, to invest. So we're not quite at the stage now where we would go and raise a new fund. We were rather cautious in 2020. We didn't make any new investments last year. We were careful in terms of uh, how the whole COVID story would would play out. So we, we, we erred on the side of caution, I would say, last year. In terms of new opportunities, um, we do expect that... Uh, there, the fact of the matter is the the COVID uh, the COVID response on a number of levels has led to the issuance of uh, high levels of debt. So we do believe that ultimately, when the uh, when when the next macro cycle turns down sooner or later, there will be a recession. No idea when. That there will be good solid businesses with over levered balance sheets. And that's another opportunity set for us we like a lot. So let's let's characterize it as good business, bad balance sheet or over indebted balance sheet. And as an example, we, we made an investment in uh, late 2019 in the Czech Republic where I'm based and we acquired a, a, a business. It's basically an engineering business, um, electrical machine, motor building business, quite sophisticated, sizable business with a massively over levered balance sheet. So in that transaction, we essentially acquired the receivable from the bank. So we we effectively bought out the banks at a discount utilizing uh, our equity. And the and the result was that the you know literally overnight the business had a much healthier balance sheet. It's fundamentally a good business. A management team that was now motivated to to kind of work, they weren't constantly firefighting and worrying about how they're going to service this massive load of bank debt. And the business has really thrived. So prior to our transaction, that was a business that it had to prepay its suppliers for inputs. It was on watch lists for its customers. You know, certain large multinational customers wouldn't wouldn't give it more business because of the state of the balance sheet. And uh, basically, with our transaction, you know, those fundamental issues were solved. And it's a really good business is performing very well. And I, I do believe that um, ultimately, coming out of COVID, there will be more of those sorts of opportunities. I also believe that there should be more opportunities, most likely, where entrepreneurs may not have a desire to exit the business. They may not want to sell the business, but they realize that having an equity injection and equity infusion provides a... Uh, let's call it a financial buffer on the balance sheet. And so far in this discussion, I've talked primarily about our acquisitions, but we're also geared to make equity injections into companies, growth capital in order to, um, let, let, let's say, uh, repair an otherwise over-levered balance sheet and or to fund opportunities, to fund acquisition opportunities, to fund growth. Very interesting. Um, and as you are in private equity world for a long time, let's say, what is your best and worst experience in deal making? You know, I, I would say I'm, I'm always thinking about re recent situations, but I, 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 I think in terms of a recent situation, really the, the sale of, of DC Bled, I would consider a very positive experience all around. The uh, the management team we we worked with in DC Blood like 
fabulous team, uh, and very good people. Um, we were advised on the sell side by a, a, a local investment banking boutique in Slovenia, Arcas, consummate professionals, uh, super people. Um, on the legal side, of course, your, your involvement, perfect on the legal side. Also, the counterparty, the buyer's lawyer uh, and legal team was very constructive, very decent. Also, the, the, the professionalism of the buyer. So this was, uh, uh, you know, the buyer in this case was, of course, a, a consortium of two la very large Slovenian companies by Slovenian standards, Sava and Triglav. And going into the process, I had, uh, I ha let's say I had my doubts that um, sort of the, the large traditional Slovenian corporate um, and especially two of them acting simultaneously in concert, Sava and Triglav, could be somehow a, uh, a straightforward, agile, responsive transaction party. And I was hugely impressed with the professionalism of, of the buyer. So um, just an, an excellent deal all around. And as far as I'm aware, I believe they're very happy with the acquisition and they're continuing down the path to grow DC Bled and, and to continue to uh, expand the business. Very good. So you, you, you've talked about many, many positive stories today. Do you have any worse, any, any worst case or any bad experience in deal making? Yeah, I, you know, I think the, first of all, you always learn something in every transaction. I mean, you know this very well as uh, on the legal side and, and what you do intersects with the commercial side very closely. But I would say the worst cases involve deception. And the, there are, are certainly cases where either in the due diligence process, we realize that uh, there's something that just doesn't add up or doesn't click. And then we will often, you know, we'll dig deeper and deeper and realize that there's been an attempt to deceive us or almost uh, mislead us in terms of the, the, uh, the state of the business. In, uh, in one case, we actually made an investment. This was many years ago in Czech Republic, where shortly after making the investment, we realized that uh, basically there was a significant level of fraud orchestrated um, on, the, on, the, on the seller side. So I would say, you know, the, the, the most, you know, the most troubling cases are, and, and admittedly they're rare, and they're becoming progressively more rare over time are, are cases where there's sort of deception involved. And that's, um, that's uh, you know, those are, those are unfortunate because in our, in our business, you, you, you know, you develop a personal relationship with the counterparties, you get to know people, you start to get, uh, uh, you know, emotionally attached to the businesses or the, the transactions and when you realize you, you 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 know you've been deceived then that's that's troubling and um uh and that's the reason why a we're very very careful about who we partner with so we're looking for individuals of high integrity all around and uh secondly we're also uh careful in the due diligence process we're really you know carefully analyzing and making sure that uh everything triangulates and clicks and, and, and there's no, uh, you know, major discrepancies, let's say. Do you have any special KYC internal procedure before you make any investment? 
we we do not have what I would refer to as a classic. I mean, well, we have let's say our 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 banks and our funders certainly have K, like standard KYC. So any transaction party would have to do what I would call standard KYC, which is no different than what one would do with a commercial bank. Rather, on our side, what we're doing is we're doing um, um, various forms of due diligence on a company or a target. So it's the class, it's legal, financial, environmental, increasingly some ESG due diligence potentially. And basically what we're doing is we're doing a lot of reference calls. So we're calling um, um, industry players, individuals who know, you know, maybe the management or owner of a business. We're calling, uh, you know, all, all, all sorts of uh, uh, industry experts around the sector to get a feel for the reputation of the business. So I would say that's, that's, it's, it's more of an art than a science, I would say. Interesting. We have covered the business topics pretty well. Um, if I may ask, if we perhaps switch to more personal topics, uh, I'm, I'm really interested in, in how did the pandemics influenced you personally? And especially, I would like to hear whether you have built any new habits in the last 15 months that you are planning to or, or you're planning not to throw away? Yeah, on a personal level, I think, I think you know, the pandemic's probably influenced, influenced us all a lot. And um, I'd say the, the, the most striking area for me is I have uh, small kids, an eight-year-old and a six-year-old, so similar, Marco, you know, to the age of your kids, yes. roughly the same range. And I, I would say one habit that's developed is a habit that I'd like to uh, minimize or mitigate, which is screen addiction amongst the kids. So the reality is, you know, these kids, especially the, you know, I have two boys and especially the eight-year-old, you know, he's on Zoom. He was doing a lot of these Zoom classes and things. And he's basically become, I, I would say, borderline screen addicted. So what we've realized is, as uh, my wife and I, that, probably one of our biggest parenting challenges over the say near to medium term is to somehow you know create an atmosphere where kids have alternatives to looking at a screen because of course you know if i was 8 years old and i had the option to look at an ipad and play a video game whatever i would that would be my number one choice of activity also so i get it i understand that it's attractive so what we've done is we've decided to uh which is a big change for us. We've decided to move. So we, we live in Prague. We live relatively central in Prague. And we literally are in the process of moving now to a more, still in Prague, but a little more rural environment adjacent to a nice forest, sort of a, a situation that's more conducive to outdoor, outdoor activities. Because we've realized that we have to give the kids an attractive alternative to the screen, we can't just mandate them to stop looking at the screen, right? And we've also, um, you know, my, my wife works also, and we, we've, we've realized that probably at least one day a week going forward post-COVID, we'll be working from home. So the longer commute is no big deal. And the trade-off between living closer to nature versus uh, having a really short commute is uh, it's, it's a trade-off that's worth, worth accepting. And I believe that's consistent with trends we see all, we see globally. You know, people willing to 
they want a bigger house with better home office, more, rec you know, happy to be closer to nature and trade off a slightly longer commute, commute for that. So we've made that, that, you know, pretty significant change, which I believe that had COVID not, uh, not occurred, we probably would not have made that change. That's probably the biggest one. Did the real estate prices explode as they did in Slovenia in the last year? Massive explosion. Um, so to be honest, uh, yeah, I mean, we're, we're basically, you know, the way we look at it, it's a trade. So we're selling something that's overpriced to buy something that's overpriced. So it's a net zero. But yeah, I mean, I, I think the, uh, yeah, the, the real estate prices are just, it's, it's on fire. Yeah, absolutely. In Prague. Sure. Like many, many other asset classes uh, uh, that, that we saw lately. Um, what is the last book, book that you read? Well, I'll talk about a book I'm reading now, actually, and uh, maybe okay. one recent book. So I have two. One, one book I'm reading now, which I'm all, almost finished, is called The Peacemaker's Code. And it's an interesting book. It's written by a, uh, a Harvard Business School negotiation professor um, named Deepak Malhotra. And Deepak, I was fortunate at one stage to be in a class with Deepak, an amazing negotiation professor. He's written a few books on negotiation, um, fascinating sort of person all around. And The Peacemaker's Code is his first work of fiction. So this is basically a, a kind of a, a sci-fi story where a lot of the, the learnings in terms of negotiation, diplomacy, relationship building are, are, are infused into the story. It starts a little slow and then it's, uh, it, gets, it gets really interesting. And I think there's a lot of, there are a lot of learnings in this book beyond the fact that it's an entertaining read, a lot of learnings in terms of, yeah, in particular, challenging one's assumptions, negotiation techniques, diplomacy. So Peacemaker's Code, I think, is an interesting one. And then in terms of a recent book I've, I've read, it was a book that was published a couple of years ago. I read it more recently. Um, and it links back to this, this topic of deception and due diligence is the story of uh, Theranos. The book is called Bad Blood. I'm not sure if you've read Bad Blood. It's the story of Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. So basically, Theranos was a... a you know, basically uh, an absolute massive fraud in the med, med tech sector um, raised, you know, billions of dollars based on a completely fraudulent uh, product, essentially. And, and, you know, first of all, it's a great book. It's just, it's, it's engaging. It's, it's almost unbelievable how this story could play out in real life. And also it's a, it's a, it's an excellent reminder That, that we all have to make our own independent decisions and judgments. So basically what happened with Theranos is Elizabeth Holmes attracted some big name investors and advisors who in turn attracted big name investors, who in turn attracted big name investors, and the number of individuals that were associated and invested with Theranos was just amazing. So it got to the point where major, major investors were not doing their due diligence and simply investing in Theranos based on the fact that um, other investors were at the party. So it's a, it's a great book, extremely well-written, and an excellent reminder to just uh, take a step back, think about things, do things really add up, 
make some independent checks, etc. Great. I'm always happy to hear about the new book recommendations. On the Peacemaker's Code, I didn't read it, but I read a different book on negotiations, which I would really recommend you reading because the guy is touching upon the Harvard uh, School of Negotiations. Uh, the book is called Never Split the Difference mm -hmm. by Chris Voss. Chris mm -hmm. Voss is an ex-FBI uh, guy, and books is really... It's a really, really fascinating reading. I would really recommend it as a comparison to the Peacemaker's Code. And, and, and the other one, that's really funny because you say the book is about judgments. And I just recently purchased, I didn't read it yet. Uh, it's my, basically my next book uh, to read. Uh, it's the book called Noise by Daniel Kahneman. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he's, a, he's an author. Daniel Kahneman is an author of Thinking Fast and Slow. Yeah. Uh, he got a Nobel Prize several years ago. Fascinating, fascinating storyteller and a psychologist. So he dives very, very deeply in the process of judgments. And go ahead. No, I was just going to jump in. And Kahneman is someone who we spoke, speak about quite a bit internally at, at, over the years at ARCS. And we've tried to design our decision-making processes with with the sort of thinking of uh, let's call it with, with some some thinking of uh, Kahneman injected into the process. For example, when we make a new investment, we have an investment committee um, which should approve which approves every new investment, and we always have. Uh, we, we call it um, the challenger role designated. You could call it the devil's advocate, but we don't use the term devil, devil's advocate because no one likes the devil's advocate, right? People like the word challenger a little better. And that's a rotating role. And the, the specific role of the challenger is to basically poke holes in the investment thesis and the investment concept being presented to the investment committee. Because the problem with investment committees in private equity or credit committees and banks or any decision-making body in business, even if you're a successful business, you've worked together a long time. And we, we as partners, we like each other. And so if, if my partner, Mikhail, brings a deal and says, okay, this is a great investment, here's why I like it, et cetera, I might be more reluctant to be you know, direct or, or critical of his deal because there's a, there's a personal relationship, there's a we want to be polite. It's a consensus-driven process. So in each, each one of our investments, we appoint someone, and this was inspired by Kahneman, to actually play the role of just being kind of the, the annoying jerk on the deal and pick, pick at the deal and pick holes in the deal. And that's a very, very important part of our process to try and remain objective. Yeah. Very interesting to hear how Kahneman's ideas are being, being implemented in practice. Uh, you mentioned that you are a father of uh, two boys uh, and you have a wife. Uh, and since you are, you must be very busy with all the work that you're doing, uh, how do you find time for, for your family and how do you manage this uh, quality time with your family and how do you like to spend weekends with them? I mean, yeah, I mean, we, we my wife is Slovak. I'm obviously Canadian. 
you know, winter sports are a, a big part of, uh, you know, our life, I would say. And congratulations on the yeah. uh, gold medal. Yeah, it was a you know, interesting one that Canada won this uh, hockey gold medal. They really had a team of uh, unknowns, basically. And um, hats off to the coach. I mean, they lost the first three games and then they somehow gelled as a team and they pulled it off. They had a little luck along the way, but they really, really, um, it was just an outstanding team performance, that World Hockey Championship on, on Sunday evening. And so we, you know, I like, I think Canadians, I think it's, if you're issued a Canadian passport, you have to like hockey. I don't think there's any option. So we do, you know, I play a little hockey for fun still, and my boys play hockey in a local hockey club here in Prague. And, uh, we, we like other winter sports. So we, we like skiing. Sometimes we're jealous of uh, you in Slovenia because you have such easy access yeah. to fabulous mountains and great skiing. So it's not quite as easy from Prague, but uh, that's, that's kind of what we like to do. We, we, we like to stay active, especially winter sports. Very good. Thank you very much, Brian. Uh, this was really a, a fascinating conversation. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I wish you all great success uh, with ARX Equity Partners. And thank you very much and have a, have a good day. Thank you. Pleasure.